This is Radio Stockdale. Welcome to Radio Stockdale. I'm your host, Michael Sears, at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. Lieutenant General Michael Grone is the Director, Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, the Jake. He leads the Jake team in transforming U.S. joint warfare and departmental processes through the integration of artificial intelligence. In prior roles, Lieutenant General Grone was assigned to the National Security Agency and served as the Deputy Chief of Computer Network Operations. He served as the Director for Intelligence, Joint Staff J2, in direct support of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Joint Staff. He has served in a variety of operational ground, air, and naval units in Central America, the Western Pacific, the Philippines, the Balkans, and Iraq. Let's jump right into this. General, you gave a keynote address at the McCain Conference this year at the Naval Academy. The McCain Conference was all about the ethics of artificial intelligence. I was impressed that you began your presentation with a picture of French Lancers. Why did you start there? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Mike. And it's a picture of Lancers. And uh, that picture, I, I ran across that picture years ago, and it's really stuck with me ever since. Because here you were that had a military organization with the proud traditions, with, uh, with ways that they thought about warfare, organizations and equipment, all associated with uh, a brand of warfare that they were very comfortable with. And this picture of these Lancers was taken uh, a year before World War I began. And World War I, of course, brought to the battlefield uh, guns that were machines, right? And poison gas as a weapon and mass indirect fire and uh, um, uh, industrial age fortifications with concrete and bunkers. And you think about those Lancers with their pride and their warfighting ethos and their technology riding into machine guns, you know, it just really strikes you. Like they were, you know, in this picture, these Lancers had rifles like slung over their shoulders. And so you know that they were, they were citizens of the industrial age. I mean, they knew industrial age technology. They were very familiar with it. They used it every day. They saw internal combustion engines. They probably sent telegrams. They certainly rode in a train. And yet, they were lancers, carrying lances on the back of a horse into machine guns where they met industrial age warfare. So this, this discontinuity between understanding uh, the warfare environment you're in and what you're prepared for and what the future holds for us and how the warfighting environment will evolve is, uh, is absolutely critical. There's another, there's a quote that goes along with that. Abraham Lincoln, right? You know, so this is in 18, uh, oh, 1862. Our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, then we will save our country. And the word disenthrall there really strikes me, right? Because the Lancers were enthralled with their conception of warfare. And they were rapidly disenthralled, right, in the face of those machine guns. So here we are today in a, in a place where we know that warfare is changing and we know it's transforming, right? It's not, this, this is not a tweak on the margins. This is the transformation into an entire new environment of warfare. 
uh, one that's faster, one that's accelerated, that applies off-site, off the battlefield and on the battlefield, et cetera, et cetera. But here we are, and I wonder, I ask this question, uh, what are we enthralled with today that we will have to reject so that we can move into preparation for this modernized information warfare environment? Some things will stay the same, but we need to be highly cognizant of the things that change and the, and the implications of that change. So the jig was set up because we're at an inflection point in warfare, moving from muscle power to machine power to compute power. Can we break this down a bit? Are you working at the data center or at the tip of the spear? Yeah, yeah, gr- great question again. And, and uh, the answer is, is both, of course, but it's actually much more comprehensive than that, right? But, you know, when you look at the, uh, like the environment around the Department of Defense, Every, uh, you know, every major corporation, whether you're in retail, whether you're in, you know, product delivery, whether you're investing uh, or, or uh, even, you know, even farming, right, highly automated today with artificial intelligence uh, and data. And, and so, like, we see this environment all around us, a modern environment that does things very differently and it, and it has changed organizations as a result. And in that flow, in that river of change, stands the rock of the Department of Defense. Uh, we have not adapted to what we know and we can see in the, the, the changes of warfare. So the Jake was formed about three years ago, just over three years ago. And, uh, you know, was, at, at first, you know, the state of the art of, of, uh, of AI was somewhat less than it is today. And it was formed first to do two things. One was adopt and the other was integrate. So the you know the, the the mission of the Jake says accelerate AI ad- adoption and uh, uh, integration of AI to achieve mission impact at scale, and so we started looking at the adoption problem right. So the so the Jake started with this idea of let's help foster adoption to help people understand the technology, see how it can be used, and then have them start to think about how they integrate it in their service or their warfighting community or what have you. But that mission that had that second half of integrating. And so, like, how do we actually now, like, get the services to work together effectively in, a, in an enterprise capability? And so, so we went from adoption to integration. And then, you know, the next step down the path was uh, we, we started to see, okay, uh, everybody kind of gets it. They want to integrate, but they need, they need help. And so we started doing a lot more work in enabling, right, and providing enabling services and data access and all these other things. And it just kind of like really exploded over the, you know, over the, the last three years. And it continues to grow. The way, the way I think of it, you know, and you look on the back of a dollar bill, you see this pyramid, right, with an eye on the top. And uh, I always I think of that eye as like that's AI. That's the pinnacle of the pyramid. That's where we want to be. But our journey of discovery you know, brought us quickly to realize that, you know what, we actually have to build the entire pyramid before we can build AI. And so we have to build things like development environments. We have to build things like uh, data policy and, and operational data availability. We have to build things like um, foundational responsible AI, the tenets of the ethical baseline upon which we're going to build our AI, the test and evaluation standards for that. And then all of the use cases, right, thinking through what problems can AI and analytics help us with and how can we best define those problems? As you know, you know, AI is great at solving problems, but humans have to get AI to solve the right problems, right? So like how do we build the human infrastructure 
and the technical infrastructure so that we can actually uh, uh, start to enable those things in the department that can be uh, assisted by automation, actually helping them do that, right, and build that automation environment. So we do everything from budget alignment to technical employment to uh, uh, bringing together coalitions of the willing to cooperate on projects. Um, the Jake is not a large organization, but uh, but we're trying to like like we're acting bigger than we are so that we can try to drive the department to think like an enterprise. And that's uh, that's that's what we do most of the time. I will say this, you know, it's it's very clear that this transformation requires not only technical expertise, but functional expertise. If you want to automate portions of your warfare environment, you have to have experts who understand that environment and understand processes. If you're going to do some uh, automation in, in, uh, you know, in an intelligence uh, capability, well, then you need intelligence people to help you do that, right? So you can, you can define the processes and get to the place where data and artificial intelligence can actually accelerate your, your ability to deal with problems and, uh, uh, and, and be able to do that comprehensively and quickly. I hear the Jake talking about data predictive analytics and artificial intelligence. How do you work with service components to get that job done? Yeah, so, so the, the services, of course, are key in the, anything that happens in the Department of Defense. The services are the mechanisms through which resources flow into the department or into the, uh, you know, into the services where they build service capabilities, right? Organize, train, and equip is the function of the services. So, so from an OSD perspective, uh, you know, we have access to policymakers. We have access to, you know, the research and engineering arm of the department. We have access to, uh, you know, to, to help guide resources and policy. But clearly that's not enough, right? Like if we're really going to make an inf- uh, a difference in the implementation in our warfare communities, well, then the services are, are, the, are the place to do that. And so we've, we've done a lot of work with the services to try to, as each service has started to go down this journey, and some within some services, like multiple communities have independently gone down this journey. So, so the, you know, the adoption of AI has exploded across the department, but it's done in very narrow pockets. And, and, uh, and, and not in every case is it done in a way that's lasting and actually material, materially uh, contributes to uh, warfighting capability. Um, there's a difference between technology and capability, of course. And the services are the ones that take the technology and turn it into capability within that service. But in this transformational environment, like in the information warfare environment, um, just like those Lancers, each of us having our own network, our own stovepipe processes, with our own infrastructure, our own data, our own uh, algorithms, and our own outputs, isn't going to meet the requirement for a joint force that can affect, that can fight effectively across all domains with a common information environment, a common sensing of the battle space, a common sensing of their, their own abilities and their own abilities, uh, you know, and the enemy's abilities. Like that doesn't happen service by service. That has to come together as a joint force and as a department level enterprise. And so, like our, you know, our mandate, you know, working with the services is really important. They're our most important partners. They have the money, but we have to help them see a path to work together. And that's, you know, so the joint force becomes really important here too. But when you think about this environment that we're moving into, um, this is much more intrusive than even jointness as we play it today, right? Jointness today 
I think of as like billiard balls, you know, in a rack. And they're very close to each other and they're in tight formation and the rack holds them that way. But the billiard balls, you know, preserve their integrity, right? Like they have their own processes inside that billiard ball and nobody else can touch that. Think about an environment where we have broad situational awareness that everybody shares. We have shared uh, appreciation for where the enemy is, what the enemy's intent is, what patterns show that the enemy is likely to do, what things are happening in the battle space today, and the same the same visibility of our own capabilities, right? So, like, when a threat is detected, a, a very compelling target pops up on the screen, that compelling target's going to be available uh, and observable by across the joint force, right? And so, like, how do we make decisions now about how to prosecute that target, you know? If it's, a, if it's an enemy ship, for example, you know, do you bring an aviation capability against that target? Do you do, you know, a, a land-based anti-ship missile? Do you do long-range rocket artillery? Do you, you know, bring another ship or a submarine? Or, like, like all of these, you know, all of these ways to prosecute a target. In tomorrow's joint force, where we're, we're integrated, you know, from a data environment, we're going to have to build, like, new processes because we're going to be able to do this so fast. It's going to be a it's going to be a matter of like how do we create the processes so we make good decisions quickly and make smart decisions about you know preserving some capabilities so that we can you know that, that we can be ready to fight tomorrow at the same you know at the same time we're prosecuting the targets today so services are are core to all of that war fighting development so same question but now with civilian tech companies both large and small. Yeah, great. So I think that there's a, a couple of key components to the relationships we have with uh, tech companies that provide this. And I, you know, I already made the comment, and I'll, I'll just repeat it here. Tech is critically important for this transformation, but it's not just tech, right? It, it has to be functional expertise, joint expertise, and technical expertise that comes together to build capabilities. And so this is this is what we're, you know, when we approach companies across the department, here's how we're looking at this. You know, there was a day, uh, you know, four years ago or so where, you know, there's a couple of tech companies were, uh, you know, a bit a bit, uh, I don't know, concerned about uh, about working with the Department of Defense. And um, like I, I will tell you, like that is so far in the rearview mirror, like we have great relationships with the major uh, AI companies and lots of small AI companies as well, right? Like we have the full gamut. And so, so having, you know, building those relationships with the companies so that they understand our market and we understand, um, you know, how to leverage their capabilities is one thing that I think is, is, is a real win. And I think we're doing, we're doing well there. But, but right, right alongside that though is, is like, how do we enable, you know, one of the things that, that frustrated us in the past is like, how do we enable like small vendors, you know, mom and pop companies that have um, like really good ideas, you know, maybe it's just a, you know, a small chatbot kind of environment, or, you know, or the great uh, edge processing capability or whatever, um, you know, these companies don't have the capital or the knowledge maybe to break into the defense market very, very easily. So, like, we built um, acquisition elements, elements now. So we've, we've expanded our acquisition offerings so that we can actually uh, solicit, uh, you know, put solicitations out that draw in not only big companies but small companies at the same time. So we work very closely with these, uh, you know, with these small companies. And we do, you know, we do things like, you know, a consortium to do, you know, specific tasks. We, uh, we, we create venues that we can, the department can hire in uh, AI talents to help them with projects. 
things like uh, responsible AI tools and, uh, and, and ways to ways to help test, evaluate, and and understand your tool environment. You know, the list goes on and on. So, so like our relationship with the tech community is, has has evolved a long ways. I still think we have a ways to go, and part of this is going to have to be reflected back to us by industry. We have every day uh, vendors knock on the door wanting to sell us proprietary solutions, right? Where they'll take our data, um, government intellectual property, and they will they will take it and they will sell it back to us, and that's unacceptable. We're not doing that anymore. So, so like we are much more, we, we're a much better consumer in the sense that we understand the value of what we have and we understand the value that we want to purchase. And that does not include closed systems or proprietary architectures. And so like we're building, we're, we're starting to build, um, uh, you know, in coalition across the services, um, open architectures that allow us to readily share and readily be able to operate on department infrastructure. So like, I guess the day of like boutique um, uh, proprietary solutions that you're going to be able to field to a small element within the department somewhere, like those days are coming to an end, which is really good for the department and our effectiveness. Um, it might make it, you know, it might make it harder for vendors that have like small pieces of a component. But I think, I think, you know, there's, there's opportunity there too, because the way we're doing business now with the, with the service labs, with uh, you know, with bringing in small companies where we can, I think we're trying to keep the aperture open, but we're very sensitive now to um, protecting government intellectual property and not just being handed solutions that aren't shareable, that aren't interoperable, and uh, and uh, leave us with nothing at the end of the day. Uh, you know, when, when we're just renting a capability for, for for some number of years. What do you see as the ethical implications of AI in the Department of Defense? To me, like one of the most important questions, there's an expectation, right? And, and we all carry this. Anybody who wears a uniform or has worn a uniform knows, you know, is very familiar with things like the law of armed conflict, right? And and the the legal imperatives and the moral imperatives of war fighting. And so, like integration of artificial intelligence, you know, anytime in any environment where you know human lives are at risk or you know could be impacted by AI, you know, think self-driving cars, you know, think, you know, uh, automated things on work sites, et cetera. It's, it's really important in those, in those kind of environments to think about ethics. In a defense environment, holy cow, there's nothing more important than having an ethical foundation for everything that we do. And that absolutely includes our technology and the way we fight. And it absolutely includes artificial intelligence. And so like in first order, right, um, I, I think I get asked a lot, you know, hey, um, why do we let this ethics stuff slow us down? You know, the, the you know, our opponents don't don't have these ethics. And so they can move really fast. And I, I will tell you, that's 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 completely backwards. Right. In my mind, the way I formulate it, you know, as a Marine, when you're stepping out on a patrol, you're always thinking about, hey, being careful is is smooth and having a process is smooth and smooth is fast. Right. So you don't hurry, you move, you move at a pace that allows you to be smooth so that you make good decisions. You don't tire yourself out. You're aware of your surroundings. You're not just running headlong into the problem. A, an ethical baseline for your artificial intelligence makes it smooth, right? Because we know that we're consistent with the laws of armed conflict. We know that we're consistent with the ethic that we carry 
as a member of the American military, right? So, like, this makes things smooth when you can think this way. And then smooth becomes fast, right? Because now, once you know that you're operating from, a, from an ethical baseline and you know how to, how to make that baseline, you know, it, turn that baseline into material action, now you're fast. So let me, let me talk to you about, like, how do you take that ethical baseline and, and actually, you know, turn it into implementation guidance? And this is, uh, this is the work. I mean, it starts with the, you know, the AI ethical principles that the, the department established, uh, you know, two or three years now ago now. Uh, reliable, traceable, equitable, responsible, governable, right? So like these, like ethical principles begin the thinking process of like how, you know, how are we building our AI and are we cognizant of all of those Sort of, you know, failure modes of reliability, for example, or equitability or, or, or responsibility, governability. Like all of those things have implications for how you actually build your AI. So as you, you know, as you start to think through those principles and, uh, and use those principles as a baseline for your development, then you have to start thinking about, okay, well, how do I actually, uh, begin to trust my artificial intelligence that's built through this, you know, this ethical pathway? And so you have to have things like test and evaluation. Right. And rigorous testing, you know, inside the, you know, inside the lab on the algorithms themselves, testing in the operational environment in which that uh, algorithm is going to operate and understanding the failure modes when things happen, the sensitivities to different types of data. So all of these things are tested, tested, tested inside our environment. And so that test and evaluation is a critical component. But it doesn't stop there either, because because it works in the, on the labs in the lab somewhere. Um, you really have to put it through its paces in the environment that's going to be operating in. And so things like we call it validation and verification, right? Like validation that the, that the algorithm is actually working in the conditions it's under and then verification that it actually works in the environment that it's operating in and then validation that it operates effectively in the human machine uh, system that is created by AI, right? So rarely do we have an AI operating by itself. It's generally either giving, feeding information to a human or enabling a human to do something, uh, maybe even driving the human around in a battlefield. But like that, you know, getting that, that human systems integration uh, piece so that not just testing our algorithms, but testing them in an ecosystem that they're going to have to operate with the humans that have to operate it uh, in, in that full battlefield context. When you work your way all through that, we call that the journey to trust, because at the end of that process, you have service members who trust their AI because they know the boundaries, they know what it does, they know how it works and where it, you know, where it might not work or where its effectiveness might be degraded. And so having smart humans like, you know, in that process makes you fast, right? Because it's smooth, because we've done this process or this journey to trust. Now we can move quickly because because people understand the environment that they're that they're in. There's 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 one final piece to this though. Um, you know, trust is a wonderful thing, but trust is not good enough, right? So you can trust things that maybe you know maybe you haven't really explored it, and so you're just taking it on faith on faith that something's going to work effectively the way you think it's going to work. And so it's much more than just trust. It really comes down to assurance. So not only are users confident in the systems, but we've tested it to the degree we've established that, you know, with evidence and arguments, the whole test, you know, operational test environments that, yes, this capability is good and it is uh, you know, is something that we are prepared to bring to the battlefield. 
that sounds complex, but when you when you walk the journey of of uh, you know all the way to AI assurance, then you know you have good tech. You know that it works effectively. You know that it's consistent with the the moral imperatives and the legal imperatives of of the battlefield. Then then wow, I mean then you can just then you can move really fast. And finally, what can a junior officer do today? What can that JO do to make sure he or she is ready to use AI assets, especially when they need to be on or in the loop? Those junior officers that are, you know, that are preparing to come into the force, you know, clearly there's going to be a focus on technical education and technical familiarity. And, and that's, you know, that's critical for everybody. It doesn't matter what occupational field you're going to be in. Every occupational field is already being impacted by AI technology. And so when you show up in your occupational field, whether you're in manpower or submarines in an airplane, you know, doing weather, you know, you're a Marine, you know, moving, moving, uh, in, you know, into a patrol, you're, you're going to be using AI. And so, so you need to understand, you don't need, you don't need to be a coder necessarily, but you need to understand the technology and the core elements of like why data driven decision making and machines that help you uh, understand the data that you're presented with are so valuable in the battlefield. And when you understand that, when you learn how to think about how to employ this technology, then you can really start to think about how you can gain tempo, how you can take processes that are not automated, but probably should be, and, and identify those processes to say, hey, you know what? I, I, I don't want to have to get an email before I can launch on this patrol with this information. I want to have that on my, you know, on my goggles, uh, you know, all the time. Like that kind, you know, that kind of thinking about, hey, I want technology applied to my warfighting function all the way down to the tactical edge and then and then all the way back up. Right. So so like really understanding the technology, understand how to think about your problems in an information age that applies no matter what your warfighting function is. But then but then when you you know, when you start really when you get out to the fleet and you start employing, you know, your your uh, your leadership capabilities in, you know, in a real operational environment. Then you you suddenly become you know not just a learner but a teacher right and even even the juniorest of, of officers has a responsibility right to to teach and to train and to mentor and to understand to make sure that their you know their soldiers sailors marines um, uh, airmen guardians um, are are all like trained to mission and understand that they understand not only the enemy environment but they understand their own technical environment too and how they bring solutions together so that's really important. When you get in, you know, as you start to move up the move up the ladder inside the services, so you know, junior officers have an eye to need to have an eye to. Hey, look, you know, those generations that came before me may not have had the same appreciation of technology that I do, and so you know, maybe they are our things that uh, you know that they've designed a process that you know it, you know was really good 15 years ago, but it's it's obsolete today. And so, like having your eyes open for opportunities to to help the transformation here. And I think that's really, uh, you know, that's, that's really important for, uh, for actually, you know, building technical talent and aligning it with your functional talent that grows with you, right, as, as you gain more experience in the service. You'll become a really good submariner or aviator or intelligence person or, you know, a resource person. Like all of those things is your functional uh, expertise grows your ability to bring technology into that place really becomes, it, it's on you, right? Like you, you have the opportunity to identify where the gaps are. And uh, I think, you know, it, 
anybody you know moving forward or entering entering the, the the services now, you're entering a transformed environment or an environment that is in transformation, right? And so you know, as you have your tech talent, your functional talent, I think you, you should also have an appreciation for where you are in history. And uh, I think as I as we started talking about the Lancers, you know, early in this conversation, young officers are leading or entering the service in a period of transfer transformation. And it's a historic period. Right. I mean, you could liken it to the introduction of gunpowder. Right. Or liken it to the introduction of, uh, you know, um, um, mobile armored activity. Right. The, at the eve of World War Two. And if you're leading at this transformational moment of history, then by, you know, by definition, as a leader, you are going to make history during your career. You will drive this transformation. The service you leave, however many years from now, will be different than the service you joined because you have brought your technical knowledge and your growing functional expertise into modernizing our capability. Lead historically. I mentioned uh, uh, you know, President Lincoln at the beginning of the conversation here about, um, you know, as our case is new, uh, we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save, save our country. This applies to you. Like, what things enthralled those Lancers that caused them to fail to see the, the beyond the horizon? What things enthrall us today? Is it a commitment to, you know, a certain type of uh, vessel or a certain type of aircraft? or a certain technology that we just feel is core to our being, yet might not stand the scrutiny of operations and the tempo of a modernized environment. You have to help the department disenthrall themselves with things that they're comfortable with so that they can think of the, the capabilities and the technology that they need to actually succeed on tomorrow's battlefield. And uh, I, I hope you seize the gauntlet, right? Because because this is this is critical for not just our military competitiveness, but our national competitiveness, and all that implies for for our ethic as a nation, and for and for what we are and who we are as the United States. And so I, I wish you all the best in that, and uh, I hope you I hope you are always thinking um, about how you're shaping the world for tomorrow. You've been listening to Radio Stockdale, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com slash podcasts.